everyone. My name is Jennifer West, and I am the host of this podcast, Take Note. I'm also the artistic director of Muse West Concerts. I am a white settler who is located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Coast Salish peoples of Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish. It is a pleasure today to be hosting um, a musician who I heard play um, about five years ago at the Vancouver Playhouse with the Galileo tour that Tafel Music did, uh, Lucas Harris. And then I was able to hear Lucas um, play a concert at home with his wife through the Tafel Music subscription series. And since then, uh, Lucas, I've been a pretty big fan. (laughs) 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 So welcome to our podcast. I'm going to give a few... um, quick, like fun, rapid round questions before we dig into the meat and potatoes of, of our podcast today. If you had to pick between Monteverdi and Vivaldi, who would you pick? Monteverdi. Monteverdi. Okay. What about Corelli or Bach? Mm, Bach. Okay. And last question, guitar or lute? <laughs> mm. Well, you'd, you'd have to specify what kind of lute and what kind of guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're I would, telling me... I would probably me... need to spend a few hours with each one to make a final decision. That's right. So what you're telling me is that you better have space for both on your desert island. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you have brought your lute, and this is going to be quite a visual podcast today, which I'm really excited about. So for the people that listen on audio... Sorry, (laughs) there will be some visual stuff that you might miss out on today, but you can watch it on YouTube and Facebook. And before we get started, I just wanted to say that Lucas will be performing with Cree Métis baritone Jonathan Adams on Friday, February 11th. That's in, oh my gosh, that's in five days. That's exciting. At 7.30 p.m. at the Bill Reed Art Gallery downtown. Uh, we cannot say thank you enough to the Canada Council for the Arts, so we'll say it in French. <laughs> Merci au Conseil des Arts du Canada pour le soutien pour ce projet. And um, Lucas, what do you have in your hands? I've got some kids watching this. They've never seen it. What is this? Okay, so this is a Renaissance lute. And uh, they come in many different sizes and shapes and number of strings. Uh, we, instead of talking about the number of strings on a lute, we usually talk about the number of courses because it has this feature of having double, each course is usually a pair of strings. Very often the top string we call the chanterelle is a single string and all the others are either unison or octave strings. So you get the fundamental pitch and then, and then one string that's tuned um, an octave higher. And um, this particular lute was made by my dear friend in Vancouver, Travis Carey. Um, and, and did I already say this is a seven course lute? That's really cool. So a lot of the students that might see this podcast later will say, it looks like a funny guitar. <laughs> um, tell us more about like it's bent, the, the shape is oval. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so it has this round body, which is like one of its main features, and it's made by bending ribs over a mold. And it has this kind of bent back peg box, which looks to some people like it might be broken or something. Um, and we don't know exactly why they built them like like that, but they 
um, they just used that convention for many, many years. Um, it has uh, friction pegs. So, you know, pegs that are just kind of, you know, go into a hole and, and, um, and you just kind of turn them and, and tune the pegs like that. There's no gears or anything like that. Um, it has uh, frets that are made of gut that are tied on. And as a result of that, they're actually movable. So I can, you know, I can actually like tune notes, you know, in different ways by just kind of moving frets around, uh, which is something that's different from the modern guitar. Uh, we talked about the double courses, so the, the double strings. Um, the strings traditionally were made of sheep gut. And nowadays we sometimes play in sheep gut, but very often we play on uh, some kind of nylon strings. Um, mostly I play on these strings that are called Nile gut that were invented by an Italian chemist named Mimo Perufo. And it's a type of nylon that's engineered to feel and sound as close to real gut as possible, but they stay in tune better. They, they, they're not quite as sensitive to changes in humidity and they last a bit longer and they're cheaper as well. Um, that sounds like a win all the way around. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah, I think Mimo should probably get a, a Nobel Peace Prize or something like that for <laughs> these wonderful strings. Unfortunately, they don't work for bowed instruments because I don't think, um, I think the reason for that is because I don't think rosin sticks to uh, mm -hmm. any kind of plastic, but for a plucked instrument, they're wonderful. Okay. And um, I should just mention that there are many different kinds of lutes with many different kinds of strings. So you might see uh, a medieval lute with only five courses and with some more kind of um, almost uh, Islamic type decoration on the top and maybe played with a plectrum. Uh, then in the Renaissance, six course lutes were common for a long time. And then they added this bass note and we have the seven course lute. And then uh, very quickly, they started adding more and more bass notes. So then you had the eight course lute and the nine course lute, and then you have a 10 course lute like this one. And then you get into the Baroque at that point, this is kind of a tr transitional lute, but in the Baroque, you get the 11 course lute in France. And then um, in Italy, you get things like the Fiorbo and the arch lute, which have 14 courses. And then finally, in the time of like J.S. Bach in Central Europe, you get the 13 course lute, which has double strings on everything except for the top two. So it's a total of 24 strings. And How do you keep track of all of them? Like literally 24 strings. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the, one of the answers to that is there's a technique of holding your pinky on the soundboard. And sometimes you'll see even like a modern rock and roll guitar player like put their hold their their wrist on the bridge or something like that to give you kind of a an anchor point so you kind of know where you are in the instrument so on the lute they they would put the pinky down like this and that and sometimes your thumb is also planted on a string and the distance between your pinky and your thumb gives you a pretty good idea of where you are on the instrument and uh, of course you can always look down and see where you are but you know of course we practice a lot to make sure we don't have to look at our hands the whole time to find the right strings. That's very, very cool. Um, since you have, uh, which which lute are you bringing to Vancouver? What would be appropriate for um, playing Dowland? Right, so um, normally for Dowland, a seven course lute like this would be absolutely cool. perfect. Um, that's the lute that Dowland often wrote for. Some of his solo pieces require eight courses. Um, and then his um, 
Lacrime, uh, the, the pieces for a viol consort with a lute part require nine course lute, but usually seven courses is, is enough. Um, so this would be normally the lute I'd bring, but in this case, I have this lute, which I call my baritone lute, which it's um, pitched. Um, actually, it's a tone lower than this lute. It's it's actually three semitones lower than than modern pitch. And let me I'll just sort of explain the idea of the baritone lute a little bit. Um, supposedly, back in the Renaissance, they didn't transpose songs or the music for singers um, by semitones on the piano the way we do nowadays. Um, the reason for that is because you can't play in all keys on, on the lute. Usually we stay within, you know, about three, three or so sharps or flats. And um, what they did instead was you would, you would go and buy a, another lute that was pitched to your voice. And so uh, if you were a, a mezzo or a baritone, you would buy a bigger lute that was, you know, pitched to a couple of semitones lower than um, the, than what was kind of the standard pitch. Well, really, there wasn't really anything like a standard pitch back then. But um, uh, anything I play on this lute, whether it's a lute song and tabulated part or a um, like a basso continual part, immediately gets transposed down three semitones. So it means, you know, all the songs from the Renaissance and Baroque are mostly just written for high voice. And it's up to you if you want to transpose them. And with this lute, I don't have to make a new score. I can just read from the score that's for a tenor or a soprano, and it immediately comes out in the right key for a baritone or a mezzo. So this lute turns out to be the like perfectly pitched to Jonathan Adams' voice. And so for that reason, I'm, this is the one I'm bringing. And it also has this wonderful kind of low tessitura, which is a nice kind of um, a nice color to have alongside a, a dark, rich baritone voice. Oh, this is really exciting. So um, when you're here, I'm hoping to sing some Purcell for you. <laughs> ah, great. So <laughs> um, if, if I have the piano score, can you read that for lute or how does it work? Yeah, you can read a piano score and a lute. You have to sort of, uh, you know, usually what I'd prefer to have is just a basso continuo part, like they like they were originally published. But usually in a piano score, you can kind of figure out what the what the mostly what the continuo part would have looked like. And I know a lot of a lot of personal songs, so I might even know the one you're you're going to sing for me. I attempt from love sickness. Oh yeah, I know it very well. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. So I, I know we have um, a young audience watching today. Do you have like 45 seconds of something anonymous from the Italian Renaissance? Or it doesn't have to be anonymous, but anything from the Italian Renaissance you could play for us? Ah, um, I probably have something. Let me just see here. <laughs> We're putting Lucas on the spot, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, give me a second. I have um, it's so so wonderful. I'm playing so often uh, music from a tablet now, and I have um, you know like probably half of the lute solo repertoire just lo loaded right here, and I should Fantastic. be able to pull something up here. Um, so Italian Renaissance, um, mm -hmm. yeah. 
So here is um, here is a piece called uh, well maybe just um, the first few bars of a piece called Ancor che col partire, which is wow. a madrigal by Cipriano Darore, and this is an entabulation for lute. They they called they use this term entabulation. Um, to refer to when you take a vocal composition in multiple parts and put the whole thing onto the lute or a keyboard or a harp or, or some other instrument that was capable of, of playing music in multiple parts. So this is a madrigal kind of arranged for the lute. Thank you. That is so beautiful. So that leads into my next question. So I've been watching the Netflix series, the Medici's. <laughs> I've been listening to an audio book about Renaissance Italy and the Medici family. Um, what a special time in Western European history. And what I wanted to ask you, Lucas, because you've studied in Italy, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, Renaissance and Baroque music have really strong origins particularly in northern Italy, um, Florence, Milano, um, Toscana, these regions. Um, why was Italy an important place for the development of Renaissance music? And tell us more about your studies in Italy. I want to know all about it. Uh, sure. Um, well, I think, um, you know, the reason why music was, uh, you know, Italy was really at the cutting edge of music has to do with the reasons why Italy was, you know, the Renaissance began in Italy. So it was, first of all, at the heart of the Roman Empire. So, you know, in some cases, especially people that were living in Rome were seeing, uh, you know, all the, the ruins of, of ancient Roman buildings every day of their lives. And so when they started to talk about reviving, you know, the ancient learning, they had the evidence of that all around them. Um, it was following the Crusades, where a lot of important classical texts were brought to Italy uh, by Byzantine scholars and other people. Um, also, in Italy, there was a system of city-states, like you know Florence and Ferrara, and you know, etc. And they would compete with each other um, to kind of show off their power and their riches. And they would do that often by hiring the best musicians and the best composers. And uh, due to all of the connections with trade routes, Italy was quite a wealthy country in some places, but also kind of a melting pot of ideas and cultures and the music that came along with them. Um, some people say of certain parts of Italy, especially like Sicily, ci sono passati tutti, meaning like everybody passed through Italy. So like, you know, the Franks, the Normans, the, the you know, the, um, the Turks that, you know, so many people kind of had some kind of dealings with with Italy. 
And um, of course there was the Vatican, which was a powerful and rich patron of the arts. So it was just like a very exciting artistic scene uh, during the Renaissance. Um, I know you probably don't know this uh, from my name. Um, my last name is Harris, but I'm actually half Italian. So my um, maternal grandparents immigrated from Calabria, um, from the south wow. of Italy in the 1930s. <laughs> And okay. I, of course, grew up not speaking Italian. That, like, by that time, um, you know, my mother, um, they, ma they made fun of my mother's accent, so she stopped speaking Italian. So she didn't speak any Italian to me, but she still understands it. And um, I had to learn Italian, you know, when I went to university, and and when I went to to Italy to study early music. So I speak it, but I speak it with an accent. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty good to me, and Stefano can probably give the thumbs up on your Italian, two thumbs up for your Italian, and it's so interesting that your maternal family is from Calabria, because the largest population of Italians in Vancouver are Calabrese, so that's that's really cool, and um, it, I guess there were, there were some noble families that were also patrons of the arts, because they wanted to be, but also because this was showing the other families hey, look at what Donatello just made for me, or hey, um, look at what this person just painted for me, or look at the entertainment you're going to hear at my daughter's wedding tonight. You know, so those families also contributed. Very cool. Um, what sparked your interest in early music? Um, well, I used to play... Um, Baroque and Renaissance music on the classical guitar uh, when I was a, a, a teen, and I always loved that repertoire in particular. And eventually I um, thought of the idea of, you know, some of the music that I played was lute music. I also made transcriptions of, you know, violin music, cello music, keyboard music. But um, eventually I just came upon the idea of trying to play some of these lute pieces on a lute. And I somehow found a, an old lute and university and started to play then. But I would say um, there were three things that really kind of cinched the deal for me in early music. One of them was counterpoint. Somehow my brain just completely fell in love with counterpoint. Um, you know, these, these uh, independent lines that kind of weave around and according to very strict rules, but that create this sensuous, glorious texture um, that, I don't know, somehow it massages both parts of my brain at the same time. It's both very expressive, but also very, you know, kind of almost mathematical in a way. And it's subject to this very strict, you know, set of rules. The second thing is continuo. Um, basso continuo in Baroque music is, uh, I, I was a really serious jazz guitarist for a couple of years when I was a teenager. And when I learned about continuo, it made immediate sense to me. I thought this is just like comping chords, but you know, a different way of writing it out. So instead of chord symbols, it's true. I have a, a bass line with some some numbers above it that tell me what chords to play. Of course, the style is completely different, but the the idea of the composer writing a shorthand for a chordal instrument just made so much sense to me because it takes so long to write out. You know, it, exactly what a piano player plays, you know, like when you accompany a song and then you're, if you even follow that, then you're not as good an accompanist because you're not as responsive and that sort of thing. And then the third thing that really um, attracted me was improvisation. 
So because of my jazz background, I loved it that, you know, in early music, you get to play music by really good composers, and yet you get to be a little bit of a co-composer in, in the sense that, you know, there are some ornaments and cadenzas and continual realizations and diminutions that uh, that need to be added to the piece, not only, not only can be, but actually should be. And um, that is really fun, you know, like to think I'm a co-composer, you know, with Josquin Desprez or, or, you know, somebody of that stature, so. Or Monteverdi. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Monteverdi's a good one. Monteverdi's a great one. And that, I'm something just doesn't surprise me that um, you have a jazz guitar background. And in our concert series, we're moving toward a model of 40% jazz, 60% classical. Um, because jazz music is just amazing. And um, I'm not surprised that you found the parallel between the two because you do, as an early musician, you, there is a lot of freedom within that counter, counterpoint structure. Um, are you a West Montgomery fan? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Any favorite West Montgomery album? Um... I, I mostly I just kind of admire him and his kind of innovation, you know, like the way he used octaves and and just his kind of melodic sense and the way his rhythm is just always like right in the pocket. And yeah, um, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd p p pick a, a favorite album in particular. Just he's just somebody I kind of think of as a one of the greats in in the history of plucked instruments. For sure. And so a lot of the work that we do at Muse West um, that comes onto this podcast is about music education. And I have to say, I am really curious about the pedagogy of plucked string instruments for Baroque and Renaissance music. What does it look like to teach? Because I'm imagining what happens is, like you mentioned, you're in your late teens, you've played classical guitar, you pick up a lute in your freshman or your sophomore year, you get interested in it. What happens after that? What's the process? Well, yeah, I mean, now there are some places where you can study the lute, you know, with a great teacher at a university. Like you can, you can go to Bloomington and study the lute with Nigel North, for example, um, or you can go to Eastman and study the lute with Paul Odette. Um, you know, if you if you weren't planning to go to one of those places, um, yeah, it's it's not easy to find a lute teacher. I mean, the numbers of people that are playing the lute are still like fairly small. You know, there's a there's a certain kind of scene of amateur players. There are not so many professional um, people like me. There, uh, we probably in all of North America, I bet we have you know, I don't know, maybe a dozen professional lute players, and they probably have at least a dozen in London, England alone. Um, so it's, and you know, those of us that are doing it are usually super busy and we don't really have that much time to teach. And we, we certainly don't have time to write method books. There was a, a wonderful, um, lute pedagogue I'd like to just talk about for a second. Um, if you'll indulge me, Jennifer, um, Patrick O'Brien, who was a, a kind of a guru of plucked string instruments and, you know, lutes and guitars and harps. And he taught for many, many years out of his New York City studio, and he just devastated the whole community by suddenly passing away in, to, in 2014. And uh, the first time I met Pat, 
I went to, I had been playing the lute for about six months and I was still trying to figure out, you know, which end to blow on, um, that kind of thing. And, uh, I met Pat and he, um, you know, somebody told him that I, he had not heard me play yet, but somebody told him like, you got to hear this kid. Um, I went to a, a lute song class and somebody gave me a, a Baroque cantata and I was just playing on a little Renaissance lute. Um, and I didn't even really stop to think that that was, you know, I, that that was a little bit thin for a Baroque cantata. But um, at some point I played, I remember it was this chord, this F sharp major chord, and I did a little, I did a little kind of ornament like that. And, it's, and somebody told me later, as soon as you hit that chord, everybody in the audience kind of looked at each other and said, oh, who's this kid? <laughs> and so I was marched to Pat O'Brien immediately. And he said, um, you know, if you don't know what you're doing after college, you could come to New York and study with me. He said, you could get a job at a record store and get yourself a crappy apartment uh, somewhere, you know, in the village or um, I don't think you can even get any kind of apartment in the village nowadays, but um, it's all being uh, gentrified in the village. Yeah, now. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he sort of gave me this offer, you know, like I could go to New York and get some kind of uh, some kind of a job, day job and, and study with him. In the end, I was lucky enough to get this um, uh, opportunity to go to Italy for a year. And then after Italy, I went to Germany for a year. So I had these two years of study in Europe. And then I came back to New York and then I started to study with Pat uh, off and on whenever I could. And he's really like the closest thing we had to a real loop pedagogue. And um, he just was, he was one of these people who could just talk so beautifully about music. And, um, you know, you'd start to play a French piece and he would, he would start talking about, um, you know, like a, uh, a silent film, you know, from the 1930s. And you'd just be nodding your head going, oh, wow, my mind is blown. You know, <laughs> now I know how to play this piece. <laughs> a, a man of deep knowledge of many sort of areas. Indeed, indeed. And and yeah, just somebody who, who was um, just had a lot of charisma and a lot of like kind of personal integrity. You know, like he was the kind of person that if there was anything, any kind of pretext or anything kind of phony about you, he saw it right through it. Um, so yeah, it was like, he was, anyway, I could go on and on about him, but he was a huge influence for me. And, um, unfortunately he, for years and years and years, he meant to write a method book for the lute and guess what? He died before it ever got done, but mm. he had all kind of files on his computer of, you know, kind of pedagogical pieces that he had fingered and so forth. And I have those and I share those with my students. And I also share all the things that I learned from him including things about like how to set up your instrument so it's more comfortable for the hand. Um, and also I used to record all of my lessons on a little uh, mini disc recorder. This like oh back my in, goodness, I remember those. Yeah, so I have in a box like all of my mini discs with all my lessons with Pat. And uh, at some point I started to make an, an effort to, um, you know, you have to, with mini discs, to make them into a digital file, you actually have to play them out in real time and make them into like go from a digital to analog and then back to digital, which then you have to do it in real time. So it takes forever. But anyway, I have that kind of treasure trove of wisdom that I can draw on when I just need to hear his voice, even though honestly, like I, I just kind of hear his voice in my head when I'm practicing all the time. 
it's that kind of teacher who leaves an indelible impression on us forever, I think. A teacher that um, helps us develop not only as a musician, but like you said, the personal integrity, um, that piece as well. And becoming a freelance musician requires that in spades. <laughs> you know, there are so many little and big business and ethical and professional decisions you have to make as a musician that really require you to be set up well as a very self-actualized human being, I think. And, you know, we really do see, <laughs> we see a spectrum of that in, in our industry. And um, I think you've been around the right people, Lucas. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel this deep sense of appreciation listening to you say that. Um, I have to say, you know, when you, when you do make the very personal decision to be a lute player, you are kind of doomed to be a freelancer. You're, you're kind of doomed to enter that world because <laughs> Absolutely. Such that there aren't any positions at universities for lutenists or nor positions in orchestras. Um, I have about the closest thing that you can get, which is kind of a, a, a long-term relationship with Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra. I'm not a core member, but I'm kind of their regular lutenist. But um, I, I take pride in, in all those things about, you know, being a freelancer. You know, I, I, like, I like to produce good work. I, I don't like to take money from anybody unless I've given them something of value. And as you say, like, there are a lot of things that you just have to kind of figure out for yourself and, um, uh, and kind of forge your own path a little bit. And I do feel certain pride that I've, you know, anyway, so far I've managed to do that. I've certainly made a lot of mistakes. You know, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, have done everything perfectly, but, um, you know, sometimes you don't really have a mentor. You don't have really have somebody who pulls you aside and said, here are the things that you need to do. Um, here are the things that are important, you, you know, the people you get to know, the, the relationships you need to cultivate, um, the skills you need to have. Um, here's how you file your taxes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, I haven't had a lot of help with a lot of that. So um, the taxes for freelance is a, is a series of podcasts, yes. each of them an hour long. <laughs> And nobody think, will show up, you know. <laughs> and nobody will show up, but they might reference them later when it's yeah, April thirtieth exactly. at eleven fifty p.m. Eastern. <laughs> oh exactly. my goodness, that is so true. So I have some piano students probably listening, ages eight to fourteen. If they don't know early music, what should they listen to? Maybe we'll start with choral. What could they start with? One choral piece, one orchestral, and maybe one chamber instrumental-ish piece? Sure. Um, well, I would say if they're pianist, I mean, I, I like the idea of introducing somebody to an early music genre that's related to one that they know. So if they're into solo piano music, they should check out solo harpsichord and solo organ music. So, you know, listen to like a, a Toccata by Buxtehuda um, or, um, you know, like an English Suite by Bach or even cooler, like maybe, um, you know, an Italian toccata by Michelangelo, Michelangelo Rossi, something like that. Um, in terms of choral music, um, you can't go wrong with Henry Purcell. It's a great place to start. Um, also Bach, you know, if you don't know, like the B minor mass and the St. Matthew Passion. Um, if 
if you like religious music, check out Monteverdi and start with the 1610 Vespers. If you like opera, try listening to Handel, maybe Monteverdi. If you like orchestral music, try Rameau. If you like instrumental virtuosity, I'd say listen to some violin sonatas by Heinrich Bieber or Jean-Marie Leclerc, or maybe some cello sonatas by Dalabico. And if you like string quartets, check out music for viola da gamba consort, especially music by William Laws, royal consorts. If you're somebody who kind of likes folk music, you might want to check out the Elizabethan broken consort repertoire, arrangements by uh, Thomas Morley and, and other people. There's always a genre that's kind of the, the early music, you know, counterpart to a modern genre. It sounds like it. Am I totally mainstream if I still really like the Corelli Christmas Concerto? Am I too mainstream? <laughs> oh, oh, I love the Corelli Christmas Concerto. <laughs> and um, you've played that on more times than you can count. <laughs> well, I'm, I hope you don't mind. Like, I, I'm going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but just before the <laughs> pandemic, I actually like worked really, really hard and created a whole program around the Corelli Christmas Concerto. Okay. Um, I play with a group called the Vesuvius Ensemble that specializes in, Ita in um, Southern Italian folk music. And we bring every Christmas a, a, a instrumentalist from Southern Italy who is a specialist in the Zampogna, which are the, you know, the Italian Christmas bagpipes. And uh, his name is Tommaso Solazzo. And so Tommaso came over and we did a program where we did a whole bunch of Baroque music with the uh, Tafel music, you know, with the Baroque orchestra, pieces that uh, were influenced by the folk music and especially by the bagpipe Christmas tradition. So, you know, all the, the I don't know if you know about this, I'm, I'm sure Stefano knows all about this, but um, at Christmas time, the shepherds in Southern Italy would come down from the mountains and they would play these bagpipes. And the bagpipes were made by like basically a sheep, like it's a, 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 the skin of a, a sheep with kind of a, a you know kind of a blowhole and a bunch of pipes kind of inserted into it and um, they would usually play in pairs one person playing the zampogne the other playing this instrument called the charamella which is like a sham and they would go to the different towns and villages and play and it was really considered to be like the music that was heard when Christ was born so it was a very very special repertoire um, and they would often play it at the churches, and um, there's this whole tradition of these presepi, these, these kind of nativity scenes that, that they would play next to. And so anyway, I made a whole program about that, which was kind of a collaboration between Tafel Music and the Vesuvius Ensemble, and we did the Corelli Christmas Concerto, and I hope the audience really understood it better at, at the end of that program, having heard the real thing, you know, the real bagpipes, and then a bunch of other Baroque pieces that were influenced by that sound. Well, I think you've just suggested our next collaboration with Il Centro here. Because <laughs> we have um, a very, like, <clears throat> very large Italian community in Vancouver. And they all kind of congregate around Commercial Drive. And they go to Il Centro. And oh, I think this would be just fabulous for them to have this program. It sounds so cool. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been trying to get a, a gig in Vancouver for the Vesuvius Ensemble um, and haven't succeeded yet. So um, it's great to hear. I didn't actually even really know to what extent there was a big Italian community in Vancouver. So that's really good to know. Um, there definitely is. 
<laughs> our podcast editor is nodding that there are definitely Italians in Vancouver. And all you have to do is when Italy wins a major soccer game, just go to Commercial Drive. You will meet 80% of the Italians. <laughs> and did you say, Stefano, 90% of them are Calabresi? Uh, well, um, there's less. There's, there's more other people. There's people from other yeah. regions of Italy. We'll we'll okay. give them some credit. <laughs> okay. Did you, when you went to Italy, did you kind of find that you were able to connect with that aspect of your heritage? Well, um, or were you too busy playing the lute? <laughs> I was. I think I was too busy playing the lute and trying to, you know, learn Italian, um, and. Um, yeah, doing like various other things. At some point, I, I I had an Italian sweetheart, so I wanted to spend some time with her too. Um, and uh, and actually, I'm going to admit to you now that I, um, the year I spent in Italy was up in Milan, so it was up in the northern part of Italy, which is I think very different than the south. Um, and I actually, it's t- a terrible to admit this, but I actually have not yet been further south than Rome. Okay. Um, I'm in a group that literally like specializes in, you know, uh, music from, uh, you know, Campania and Puglia. And um, sometimes we also play like music from uh, Abruzzo and uh, Mm -hmm. Calabria. But but a lot of it is really from the region around Naples. And I still haven't been there. (laughs) Driving me crazy. I really, I I really must, must go. L'anno prossimo. Si, ecco. Wonderful. So uh, Lucas will be in Vancouver later this week. This is too exciting. And um, we will be having a fantastic concert with Lucas Harris, the principal lute player for Tafel Music, and uh, Jonathan Adams, uh, baritone. And this concert will be Friday, February 11th at 7.30 p.m at the Bill Reed Art Gallery. For those who are still hesitant to join public events, the digital concert will be available a week after the performance. For those of you um, ready to get out of your apartment, <laughs> um, we have a handful, and I mean a handful of tickets left. Literally, if you can see me, this many tickets, just 10. So um, we anticipate those will be gone by Wednesday. Therefore, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, folks. (laughs) Grab a ticket. Uh, Lucas, it has just been a wonderful conversation with you. And I know that many of us on our Muse West team are looking forward to having more conversations with you here in Vancouver about music, early music. um, And it sounds like maybe we should have an Italian meal while you're here. I know a place. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) <laughs> wonderful everybody thank you so much grazie a tutti um, our podcast editor today is Stefano he's with us here today in the house in the casa Lucas can you take us out with a little cadence <laughs> sure and you know what there's one little thing I forgot to mention I, I mentioned the the maker of the small renaissance lute Travis Carey but the the baritone lute is made by Wilma Van Berkel uh, who lives in London Ontario so she might be watching them Wanted cool. to make sure she gets some recognition. It's a, f- a fantastic lute. So here we go. Thank you. 
Well, this has been a very, very special episode of Take Note. My name is Jennifer West, and we will hopefully see all of you at the concert on Friday. Thank you to the Canada Council for the Arts for your support, and to Tom Lee Music for this fancy microphone. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.